Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Edward McBride, finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. This week, we'll be talking to Simon Rabinovich about the economics of coups after a tumultuous week in Turkey. Some have estimated that it's as much as a 2% decline in income per capita every year after the coup for well over a decade. And we'll be looking into what's causing turmoil in African banks. There's really almost no transparency. No one quite knows what those banks are getting up to. I mean, that, that is synonymous with the crisis. We're now joined by Jonathan Rosenthal, who's been looking at growing concerns about African banking. Africa's banks have been placed under too much stress by the commodity crisis. Oil-rich countries like Nigeria and Angola are seeing the economic ramifications of collapsing oil prices, which have exposed weaknesses in their banking systems. Jonathan, first of all, how big a crisis are we talking about? Well, that's the first thing that really interested me. And it's a question that I took to Alan Cameron. He's an economist at Exotics, which is an investment bank that specializes in frontier markets. I'm Alan Cameron, and I'm an economist with Exotics focused on Africa. Alan was one of the first prominent voices on African banking to call out Nigeria as being in a banking crisis. Now, that's something the Nigerians themselves have been denying and continue to deny. So I asked him, what's going on there? Well, I, I think if you look at the sector, the biggest bank, the First Bank of Nigeria, is showing us NPLs that are about 18% as of the last results that they've reported. Um, and when you think that's the, the biggest bank in the system, and, and those are the figures they're reporting, I mean, that, that is synonymous with the crisis. Um, and the reason why the NPLs it's showing are so high is because in the sector, it has one of the highest exposures to oil and gas. But if you, if you consider the average across the sector... It's anywhere from 30 to 40 percent. Um, and, you know, with the decline of the oil price, obviously, uh, you know, that's created a significant number of, of non-performing loans. And, and then looking at a couple of other economies, I mean, uh, sort of Ghana NPLs have, have jumped from about uh, 11 percent in 2014 to about 16 percent now. Um, you know, sort of a couple of other countries where banks are under stress. Can one make a kind of generalized point that as the commodity cycle has turned uh, out of Africa's favor, that one's now seeing you know, kind of generalized stress in banks across the continent? I think you can, and I think it's more than just the commodity cycle in particular. It's just a slowdown in growth. I think that markets have lost a lot of faith in African economies' ability to, to continue growing quickly and to deliver. Um, that's spilled over into markets. A lot of capital has stopped coming in, or has been, you know, the capital flows have reversed altogether and capital is leaving these economies. That's required a response from central banks, which have had to raise interest rates to pretty high levels. And that, in turn, is spilling over into NPLs. And I think that's, you know, that's very much the story in Ghana. In, in that way, it's more than just a downtrend in commodities. It's a general slowdown in growth combined with the regulatory response that has created, which is, which is causing problems for the banking sector. We're going through an adjustment period right now that's likely to last at least the next year, if not longer. 
So Alan's saying that, that we're in the middle of a period of adjustment, um, but that there will also be longer-lasting sort of structural issues that we should be worrying about going forwards, right? A lot of what these banking crises, uh, both in Nigeria and elsewhere in the continent, are exposing is a, a bit of a legacy of somewhat weak regulatory uh, cover. The, the banking standards in Africa are not the same level as one sees elsewhere in the world. A lot of them still have to move into the kind of Basel II, Basel III tiers. Regulators really need to tighten up and clean out their systems. So uh, do African governments, do the, the bureaucracies of these countries have the capacity to really enforce very complicated regulations like like the, the Basel banking standards you just mentioned? Often at the top of central banks, you've got really, really good people. It'll be a tier or two down where it's, a, it's kind of, you know, the banking supervisors, the guys who have to go in and look at the books, who perhaps need a bit of help in being upskilled. But a slightly bigger question as well is, is that of uh, central bank independence and, and regulatory independence and whether it's being subjected to uh, political interference. Now, we've seen this elsewhere in the world. It's also happening in Africa. Uh, if one looks again at Nigeria, a few years back, uh, Lamido Sanusi was a highly respected central bank governor, and he more or less got you know, sort of forced out because of corruption allegations he'd leveled against the government. So we do need to also see that it's not just the skills and, and kind of technical abilities of, of, of regulators and central banks, but also that institutional stability. Right. So, so not just a question of personal capacity, and presumably there are many very competent uh, bureaucrats in Africa, right? But the question of the sort of institutional structures, whether they're allowed to work, whether the institutions are strong enough for those people to, to have an impact. It's exactly about that. It's about the institution having, uh, really having the guts to stand up to a government and then having parliaments and the like who will protect uh, the independence of those institutions. What countries, what, what institutions are, are looking most worrisome at the moment? I'm going to turn that around slightly and, and say sort of what, what are the least and let's look at the biggest economies. And actually South Africa, it's had ba- bank failures in recent years, but still a pretty robust institutional framework. So South Africa, I think everyone everyone thinks is okay. The next big uh, banking industry on the, on, on the continent is Nigeria, and that one really does have to worry about. It did a it did a huge clean out a few years ago, but again the sector seems to have overextended itself. You know, one is seeing uh, what seems to be a lot of regulatory forbearance, and, and, and that's kind of a polite term for saying regulators are not forcing banks to clean out uh, the dodgy loans on their books. So, so one really has to worry about Nigeria just because it's, it's, it's so big and it's worrisome. And then you've got a bucket of places that are that are actually, frankly, quite small and disconnected from global markets. So people aren't looking at them, uh, but they're, they're very important to domestic economies. And those are places like Angola and Mozambique, where there's there's really almost no transparency. No one quite knows what those banks are getting up to. And and even if we knew what was going on, and presumably the the effect of the massive decline in the oil price, the decline in other uh, commodity prices that are the main exports of of almost all these countries, right? I mean, that's that's got to have a big effect on local borrowers. Presumably, they're less able to pay their debts. That means bad debts would be building up anyway. I mean, we've, we've got to assume, even where we don't really know, that the picture's probably fairly grim, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For, 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 for many of the reasons that you've just given, there are huge external pressures on these banks. The question then is, is you know, sort of how robustly capitalized are they? And, and, and in general, African banks have, have generally had bigger capital buffers than one saw uh, in, in, in the West pre-2008. So that's at least some comfort. But one, one really has to worry about, uh, about you know, sort of what is on their books, how much related party lending has been going on to, you know, kind of cronies, people in government, and then all of these exogenous stresses, the lower oil prices and the economic slowdown that are, that are really going to expose all of the faults that have been building up in those systems. 
So we're looking at a, at a picture basically of at best lending drying up. What what little lending there there was in many of these countries uh, drying up altogether, and at worst uh, a sort of fully fledged banking crisis where the governments have to do big bailouts and then perhaps themselves get bailed out. Indeed, and we'll probably see a combination of the above from country to country. Jonathan Rosenthal, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a week of great upheaval in Turkey. Turkey used to have lots of coups, but they had seemed to be a thing of the past. Recep Tayyip Erdogan's AK Party has won a series of elections by healthy margins. And although it's been criticised as a liberal, it's still very popular within Turkey. It's also presided over a long period of relatively fast economic growth, but the growth rate had already been declining before the attempted coup, and Mr Erdogan had been becoming more authoritarian. On Turkey, I think it's very important that uh, we see restraint and moderation on all sides. The fear is that the coup might reinforce his strongman instincts and hurt the economy. We also urge the government of Turkey to uphold the highest standards of respect for the nation's democratic institutions. But the question of how economically damaging the coup would be is is hotly debated. And it it turns out that coups have very uh, varied effects depending on the country and its circumstances. To discuss this, I'm joined by Simon Rabinovich, our Asia economics editor. Simon, first of all, how ruinous can a coup be for a national economy? Yeah, coups can clearly be very damaging for growth. Uh, they, they dent confidence, they dent tourism arrivals, they make businesses less secure in uh, undertaking any kind of long-term investment. Uh, the general uh, domestic stability is called into question. Um, so, so coups are, are never good for growth, uh, that's clear. In some cases, they're a lot worse for growth than, than in other cases. Right. You, you've come across some research that shows that the amount of economic damage varies according to the type of regime that's the victim of a coup. Is that right? That's right. So, I mean, there's, there's been dozens, even hundreds of coup attempts and successful coup uh, over the last half century. So that's allowed scholars to, to look at the impact of them. And there's a very clear uh, demarcation between coups that take place in democratic system and, and coups that take place in authoritarian systems. The impact in authoritarian systems is, is actually relatively muted. But when there's a coup in a democracy, it's very, very severe. Some have estimated that it's as much as a 2% decline in income per capita uh, every year after the coup for uh, well over a decade. So the total impact ends up being uh, nearly a 15% decline. So what does this research tell us about a case like Turkey's, where there was not a successful coup but an attempted coup? Did, does it have the same effect? Based on all the observations, the prevailing fact is that if a coup is attempted but failed, it tends not to have a big impact on the economy. Now, when you look at the situation in Turkey, you know, it's arguable that it'll play out very differently. Although it was a failed coup, uh, it looks like Erdogan is going to be using it to cement his authority almost as if the impact was was a coup-like change in in the style of of government. And how about some of the other recent coups we've seen uh, in developing countries? I mean, uh, both uh, Egypt and uh, Thailand spring to mind as countries where the economies are struggling after um, successful military coups. That's right. And and that that certainly supports the the, the broader observation that coups in systems that are, are democratic or somewhat democratic uh, are, are bad for growth. They're bad for the investment uh, climate, uh, and they're bad for domestic businesses. Right. And in particular, that idea that democracy is messy and maybe some strongman regime could just sort of clear away all the clutter and get things done. 
that hasn't been borne out in the cases of Thailand and Egypt. And it looks like to the extent that we end up with a strongman regime in Turkey following the coup, we may have a similar problem. That, that's absolutely right. And I would just say that up until now, we've just been talking about the growth impact. Um, but uh, again, economists who've looked at it have identified a series of negative things that take place. So countries, democratic countries that experience coups, uh, tend to experience more weakness in their financial systems. And there also appears to be problems with social spending that occur as well. And again, you think that with a coup, you've got an elite that's been able to basically secure its position at, at the top of society. And so there turns out that there's less social spending over time uh, and basically uh, you know, a negative distribution of wealth towards those that uh, either carried out the coup uh, or are allied to them. We should be happy that the coup in Turkey was not successful, but we should be very concerned that the regime that will occur post-failed coup attempt will be more autocratic and, and less democratic. Simon Rabinovich, thank you very much. If you have any thoughts about the economics of coups, perhaps you're planning a coup yourself and need some guidance, don't hesitate to get in touch on Twitter at Economist Radio or via email radio at economist.com. Well, that's it for Money Talks this week. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.